Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if anyone in the church sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, no, Peter, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Forgiveness is difficult to talk about. It's really hard to talk about forgiveness. It's difficult to talk about because there are always two sides to forgiveness. There's the person who offers it and there's the person who receives it. We, being the beautifully flawed people we are, are uncomfortable with the subject of forgiveness because we know that we have done things in our lives that require someone else to forgive us. And we also know that we have encountered people who have wronged us to such a degree that we have withheld from them our own forgiveness. Which means that no matter how we come to the subject, whether the one who needs it or the one who needs to give it, it leaves us squirming in our pews. It's one thing to offer forgiveness... It gives us all the power in the world. We can draw out the pardon until our transgressor begs and pleads. We can lord it over our spouses or our children or our co-workers, our friends, or even people in church. Receiving forgiveness is another thing entirely. Because even if the action is genuine, we can be left feeling as if the scales will never be even again. And we can walk through the rest of our lives with a shackle to a mistake from our past. But we're the church. Forgiveness is our bread and butter. It's supposed to be easy, right? Hey, Lord, suppose someone in the church sins against me. Let's say they tell an untrue rumor about me behind my back. How many times should I forgive them? Hey, Lord, suppose my grandfather tells me that if I go into the ministry, I'm wasting my life. How many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Hey, Pete. Hey, Taylor. Seven ain't enough. Try unlimited forgiveness. How's that feel? I don't know about you, but I could be on board with a lot of this Christianity stuff. You know, I'm all about taking care of the last, the least, the lost. I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus was raised from the dead. But forgiving someone 77 times? Come on, Jesus! But of course, forgiveness is not just some sort of moral requirement hanging out there in the middle of nowhere. Forgiveness is all sorts of confused and tied up with the raising of the dead. Because without the raising of the dead, forgiveness is just crazy stuff. It goes against everything we stand for in every other part of our lives. You know, there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. And if someone does something wrong, well, then they have to do something right to make it good again. But forgiveness... The kind of forgiveness that Jesus talks about, it is a gift offered to the foolish and the undeserving. It is not a reward bestowed upon the perfectly repentant. Take the crucifixion. Jesus dies. And God asks for no response to the death. There's no moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross by the nails in his hands when he looks out and says, Hey, so long as all of you get your acts together, so long as you finally forgive everybody in your lives, then I'll raise from the dead for you. There's nothing we have to do. Before God offers an unwavering and a totally covering pardon over everything we've done. Which is crazy. Because it doesn't jive with our sense of fairness and justice. And yet, according to God's mercy, the only thing necessary for our forgiveness is the death that sin has caused in Jesus. Jesus' cross, his empty tomb, contain all the power necessary for what we call the strange thing of the church. 
For some reason, forgiveness is one of the most difficult things to talk about, even though it is at the heart of what it means to be God's church. The emphasis here from Jesus in this little prelude to the parable with Peter is that forgiveness is unlimited. If 77, it's a number, but it's not the total. It's for biblical reasons. It's supposed to be infinity. You are to never stop offering forgiveness. But who in their right mind wants to forgive someone or someone infinitely? The kingdom of heaven is like a king. Like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants, his slaves. And when he began the process, a slave was brought before him who owed him $10 million. The scripture says 10,000 talents. It's about $10 million. And of course, he could not pay the king back. So he, along with his wife and his children, and all of his possessions are sold right away to the next highest bidder. Fairness, justice. Jesus, ever the good teacher, he starts the story with the law. There are some rules that you have to follow. Because life has to be fair. The king is a bookkeeper like the rest of us. He knows and remembers who has wronged him and to what degree. If you play by the king's rules, if you follow his directions, all will be well. But if you break the rules, well, we all know what happens if you break the rules. And then the slave speaks for the first time in the story. Having racked up an impossible debt, he says, Lord, be patient with me. I'll pay you back. And we already have questions. I mean, how in the world could a slave possibly pay back $10 million? Why would the king ever let him accrue such a debt in the first place? He's apparently not a very good king, but the Bible doesn't respond to our questions. All we get is this story. And how does the king respond? Having just ordered him to be sold along with everything else in his life, having responded to his sin with sin, he simply waves his hand and the slave disappears into his own suffering oblivion. Or at least that's how the story is supposed to go. You know, we're supposed to imagine the king as this vindictive tyrant who's smiling as the slave is dragged, kicking and screaming. That's not the story Jesus tells. Instead, the king takes pity, releases the man, and forgives him all of his debt. The servant has done nothing more than ask for grace, and grace he receives but it is a grace greater than he could have ever imagined. His slate has been wiped clean for good. He has been freed from every shackle around his ankle, from the fear that has kept him awake at night. He has been freed from everything. Now that alone would be enough for an incredible parable, a profound witness to grace and mercy, but of course that's not the end. Because before we even get to the namesake of this parable, the unforgiving servant, we have to stop with the king. Because he offers this incredible forgiveness without giving it much thought. He doesn't retreat into his antechamber to weigh out the profit-loss margins about the debt. He doesn't consult with his trusted advisors. He just forgives the debt like that. It's all gone. And that's not alone. He forgives the debt, and then he leaves the bookkeeping business behind forever. The king chooses to die to forgive the man. Now, lest you think that's an overly you know, reaching read of this story, to forgive a debt like $10 million, as great as the slaves was, is not just a matter of being nice. It is a willingness on the king's part to say, I'm going to throw everything away for my slave. Because without receiving that money back, the kingdom would cease to operate the way that it's supposed to. Everything in that kingdom would be destroyed. The forgiveness offered by the king is not just a nice gift. It is his own radically changed life 
through choosing death instead. The king chooses to die. He dies to what he knew, what he believed, and how he lived for his slave. The slave leaves the presence of the king. He's still on cloud nine. He's dancing down the streets in the kingdom only to encounter a fellow slave who owes him a couple hundred bucks. And the other slave asks for the very same mercy. The unforgiving servant throws him into prison until he could pay off the debt. Which raises another question. How does one pay off debt in prison? So we might imagine the unforgiving servant as this Bond movie villain. He's sitting there with his little pinky in his side of his mouth rubbing a little white cat. He's the worst of the worst because surely no one would be so dumb as to receive such an incredible gift of forgiveness only to lord out a debt over somebody else. But in reality, this man is exactly like the rest of us. He is unwilling to let go of the old to embrace something new. When the king catches word of what the first slave did, he summons him back before the throne. What's wrong with you? Have you no mercy? And he hands the man over to be tortured until he could repay his whole debt that had been previously forgiven that same day. The king chooses to die. Not literally, but he certainly embraces a death to the way things were, for something new and something strange and bewildering. The unforgiving servant, on the other hand, receives the greatest gift in the world, and he refuses to die. He refuses to let go of the bookkeeping that dominates his life. To be sure, this kind of radical forgiveness is weird. Imagine, if you can, if this kind of radical forgiveness was instituted across the world. Imagine if I said to you today, God said, hey, all that debt you have, all that credit card debt you have, all that student loan debt you have, all that medical debt you have, that mortgage you have, guess what? It's all gone. You know what would happen? We would rejoice and the world would fall apart. Our entire government, our entire banking system, almost everything in our life hinges on the fact that some people owe other people something. If all that debt were forgiven, the world would fall apart. It's so crazy that we can't even imagine what it would look like. And strangest of all is that it has already happened. It has already happened. And Jesus is drawing Peter into a sort of trap with a story. He's drawing all of us in all these years later. Jesus is trying to say yet again that he's going to fix the world by dying. That he will destroy the death by dying on the cross. That he will free us from ourselves by losing everything himself. It's like Jesus is shouting at Peter as loud as he possibly can. Peter, unless you die, unless you die to your insatiable desire for payback, then you might as well live into a tortured existence like the unforgiving servant. Or to put it another way, we will never ever be able to enjoy the gift of the resurrection, a gift handed to us for nothing if we cannot face the absurdity of our unforgiveness. It's in facing what we have already received that we cannot help but change the way we see everything else. The king says to the servant, you dumb idiot, I died for you. But you were so busy making your own plans to collect for yourself that you didn't even notice what I did for you. And the end of the story is a frightening one. We can't just dismiss it. We can't look away from it. The king doesn't just accost the man with words. It says he hands him over to a life of torture. Self-inflicted torture. This parable contains just as much mercy as it does judgment. We're all like the unforgiving servant. We have all received an irrational pardon. We have been forgiven from everything we've done. 
We have been forgiven from everything we're doing right now. We are already forgiven for all those sins we haven't even done yet. But to live in the light of that kind of forgiveness, to see how God died for us without dying ourselves to that former life, we will be miserable. We will be miserable. Our thirst, repayment, our thirst for retribution will always go unquenched and it will drive us mad. Without responding to our own forgiveness, with forgiveness, whatever our lives look like will far more resemble hell than they will heaven. There is no limit to the forgiveness offered by God through Christ. It sounds crazy. I know it does. But it's true. If there were a limit to the forgiveness offered to us, then Peter would not have cut it as a disciple, and neither would any of us. This interaction, this little moment with Peter, this parable that Jesus tells It demands that we become a people who can forgive each other. But that presupposes that we know we are a a people who have first been forgiven. We can only forgive because we've been forgiven. So hear me in every fiber of your being as I say these words. In the name of Christ, you are already forgiven. You are already forgiven. You are already forgiven. And you can't do anything about it. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.